Okay, well, we finally come to the, uh, the big event here in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The last couple of weeks, we've just sort of been preparing for that. The, uh, two weeks ago, well, that was the title of that message, was the preparation. Uh, Jesus had just simply received news that his good friend Lazarus, Lazarus whom he loved, was sick. Um, and so uh, Jesus uh, was in the area beyond the Jordan, the area of Perea, and so he was going to have to come back to Judea to to see Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary. And we saw that in that, in that section when he received the news that he stayed two extra days. And we looked last week as to why he stayed those two extra days uh, so that when he arrived, last week was the arrival, he arrived to find out that Lazarus has been dead for four days. One of the superstitious beliefs of the Jews was that the soul would hover around the body for three uh, days. So if Jesus were to simply come within three days and uh, raise Lazarus, it would be something more like a resuscitation and, and maybe he you know, didn't really do much of a miracle at all. But after four days, Lazarus would have been good and dead. And so we have today coming to the point where Lazarus has been buried in the tomb for four days, and we will see him raise him from the dead. Christianity is based on the conviction that the resurrection of Jesus and all the other miracles, including this one that we'll read about today, is historical fact, much like what they're doing at this conference. Genesis, what we read about at Genesis, historical fact. And the church, in an effort to sort of strip away historical fact in lieu of what they deem to be scientific evidence, has stripped themselves of any authority of the rest of Scripture. You say this part isn't true, then who's to say that, that this is? What's fantasy and what isn't? But it's evident that the early Christian fathers and the early Christians and the apostles believed the resurrection to be true, a fact. And Paul preached the resurrection as historical fact himself, and nowhere is that uh, as clearly seen as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I just want to take you there to begin with. I know you've probably all turned to John chapter 11, but if you just make a short right-hand turn, uh, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, you're right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul devotes a pretty elaborate chapter here to the defense of the resurrection, and he says in verses 3 to 5 these words, "'For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received.'" That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Here at the beginning, He just says, this is fact, and this is because of the Scriptures. The Scriptures speak of the resurrection. We looked last week at Psalm uh, 16. And, and Psalm 49 speaks of it. Psalm 86 speaks of it. We, we see in the scriptures speak of resurrection. We look back at Job. Job believed in a physical resurrection, right? Even though my flesh will fail, my eyes will see the Lord. And then he goes on to defend all, with all the witnesses. Then he was seen, verse 5, by Cephas, Peter, and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. People still alive but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Even Paul, Paul said, and then I as well, I witnessed the, this resurrection. But the rest of this chapter is pretty amazing because Paul entertains a, a pretty uh, terrible thought. Uh, what if it didn't happen? 
What if Christ did not rise from the dead? And he answers that question beginning in verse 12. Look at this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. (laughs) And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. We're, We're preaching emptiness. And your faith, what you believe in, is emptiness. You believe in nothing. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Why? Because we've testified of God that He raised Him up, uh, raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope of in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Three things he says here, right? If, if Christ didn't rise, we're a bunch of liars because we've been testifying to the fact that he did. So we just, we, we're, we're liars. And also for you, you're still in sin. Bad news for you. Because we're preaching your sins are forgiven through Christ. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, what, what, how can we believe anything he said? He didn't accomplish anything. You're, you're still in your sins. And if that's true, what about all those who have fallen asleep before us? What about those who have died, who have, you've, you've believed to be in a, in a better place, those whose sins have been forgiven? Guess what? Not true either. They've perished. They've gone to hell. You see what he's done here? He's like, entertain these thoughts, will you? If you don't believe in the resurrection, look, look where that rabbit tra- tail, trail takes you. It's It's terrible. It ends up into a very desperate place for human beings, and our faith is useless. We might as well pack up everything and go home. So you see here, the significance of Jesus' raising Lazarus from the dead is even more important than the event itself. It transcends that, meaning the life of Lazarus was restored, right? That's amazing. But as amazing as that is, what's more important to John, the author here, is what it demonstrates about Jesus. That's what's more important. This seventh and climatic and most powerful sign demonstrates, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus himself. The idea is this, because Lazarus rose, Jesus rose. So let's read the passage. We'll be looking at verses 37 to 44 today. Beginning in John chapter 11, verse 37. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind... Also have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus came, I'm sorry, then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Let's pray. 
Lord, the account that we have just read today would cause many to scoff if we were to say that that is a historical fact. But Lord, we're reading your words, the words of the divine, the word of God, the truth. Lord, today we are reading about something absolutely fantastic, one who is able to give life to one who is so obviously dead. Lord, I pray that you would just open up our hearts and eyes to see what the significance of this event is, what it means for us today, believers today. We have new life, uh, true life, eternal life in you because this happened. So show us these truths today. Open up our hearts to apply these things to our lives that we might glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we ended uh, contemplating the humanity of, of Jesus it was uh, fully on display. Uh, Jesus wept. We looked at the shortest verse in the Bible there. And his weeping was in contrast to the, the mourning and the lamenting and the wailing that was taking place there uh, with all the professional wailers and the friends of Martha and Mary. In fact, uh, that wailing and, and weeping actually caused a reaction in Jesus, if you remember. He got actually angry, um, stern. Because Jesus has just declared himself to be the resurrection of life, and here he sees nothing but death and destruction and pain and sorrow all around him. But it's in contrast because as he begins to head to the tomb, he is remembering he loves Lazarus, and so he silently weeps for him. He sobs. And I love what John has done there. He has shown us the humanity of Jesus, Jesus being fully uh, man on the threshold of the most incredible display of his divinity when he will raise one from the dead. And the Jews there rightly correct, um, correctly interpreted what was taking place there. They said in verse uh, 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. And I think that was a correct interpretation, and that's where we, we ended there. But as we begin here in verse 37, we see that there is uh, others that are not, uh, not very sure. Not really sure what, Je- what Jesus is, is go, you know, going through right there. We're not sure what the weeping is about, and they say something completely different. Look at verse 37. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Interesting. They, they look at the weeping of Jesus, and they interpret it completely different. There's some that say, oh, look, what lo- he loved him. Now, Jesus healed a man born blind, right? That was just a few months prior to this, and that had to cause quite a sensation in Jerusalem, no doubt, word of mouth spread. And if you recall, uh, the man who was healed after being blind all his life followed Jesus. And it was so worth it to him, he was, he was cast out of, of the, the synagogue, right? He no longer belonged to the people, the Jewish people. And no, longer, no, no doubt that created quite a, a stir. They knew about Jesus and the healing of the blind man. Just fresh on their minds. Yet here they're looking at Jesus and his weeping and beginning to wonder, well, this man opened the eyes of the blind, but couldn't he also have just kept him from dying? Why is he weeping? Why is he mourning? What? Maybe he doesn't have that power then. You know, maybe that was just a one-off. Maybe he got lucky. You know, remember, he had to wash his eyes off in the pool of Siloam. Maybe it was the pool. Maybe it had nothing to do with Jesus at all. I mean, couldn't he have done that? But he's, he's crying. What's going on there? 
And maybe their reasoning is similar to that of Mary and Martha. Both of them said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You remember that? Maybe it's, maybe it's more that. Well, if he'd been here, I'm sure he could have done something. But, but what's clear is that, that all of them are in the same place. Lazarus is dead. There is no hope. And so Jesus feels it too. He's, there's no hope. He's weeping. He's crying. And so he's heading to the tomb. So here we go to verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Uh, here we see Jesus again groaned. It says the same word here because we saw that word back in verse 33. mai literally means, if you recall, to snort like a horse, right? There's a grunt, kind of a... Urgh. You remember why he groaned earlier? He groaned earlier because he had made an amazing declaration, right? Life is in Jesus. It's in him. And Jesus looks around and sees the death, he sees the sorrow, he sees the pain, he sees Satan hard at work and people in despair, wailing, mourning. There's just no hope. It's a place with no hope. But Jesus has come to give hope. I know I look around the world today, I see a lot of mourners and wailers. And I know, I go, man, those people just don't have hope. And what they need is hope. (laughs) That's what they need. They so desperately need the hope of of Jesus. Doesn't that make you weep sometimes? But also sometimes maybe you get the same reaction here. You get a little angry. Oh, man. Satan wreaking havoc and people enslaved to sin and, and have no hope. And you just want them to be free. And so you could just see Jesus, right? He's like, oh, I just drives me crazy, right? And here he is weeping. He has a true moment, a, a, an emotional moment, reacting over the death of that. And some people are always saying, oh, well, you know, he could have He could have done something, maybe. Oh, brings up that reaction in Jesus again. You remember that word just carries a sternness um, with it. The idea, obviously, this is absurd. Could could Jesus have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? Absolutely, he could have. But Jesus is here for something else. Remember, Jesus purposely delayed because his purpose was not to heal Lazarus. His purpose was to raise him from the dead so that he might bring glory to himself and to God the Father. And notice here, too, we get a great description here of a, of a tomb, don't we? He's come, he's come to the tomb. It says it's a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are, have seen pictures. You can you know, go online and see all kinds of pictures of tombs in Israel, but we have a certain individual in Israel right at this moment, my son. And so, you know, what am I going to do? I'm like, son, send me some pictures of some tombs. So I don't have some just generic tomb pictures for you. I have tombs with my son in them. Well, that just sounds weird. Right? Wait, my son's in a tomb. Wait, what am I saying? But here, let's see. I think we've got a few pictures here. Um, the, this is a, a tomb, if you can believe. This is a giant tomb. This was the one the mighty men of David would have been in. They would have hidden in this, this tomb. So it's quite a large cave, you can see. It's just a limestone wall that they would have dug into to form a, a cave. Uh, the next one uh, that I have is the tomb of Judas, actually. And this is probably more like what we would see here with Lazarus. And you might hear some of you like, tomb of Judas. I tried to get him get a tomb of a Jesus picture, but they did it at night. So the pictures are rubbish. You can't see them. But um, uh, the, this is them. Uh, these are the, the tombs for the commoners here. So they would just literally line them up side by side by side. That just looks horrific. Uh, but go back to the other one if you can real quick. 
So this would have been more like what you would see with Lazarus. They would have leveled the ground and they would have built shelves in the area into the natural limestone wall to, to make shelves where they could place the dead bodies. And some tombs were for one, some tombs were for, for entire families. They would place uh, many people in the, uh, the tombs there. So here's where he's gone to. He's gone to a tomb. Now, we don't have any pictures here of the stones, but I remember being in Israel, seeing the big stones that they would roll in front of the cave, and they would lock up sort of the, the death inside because there was always the possibility of defilement. That's why the tombs were on the outsides of the cities. They didn't want them in the villages. And you have to remember that Jesus hasn't actually entered the village. Remember, he was on his way. Martha and Mary are at the house, and they're, they're mourning. Someone gives news to Martha that Jesus is on his way. She doesn't stay in the house. She bolts out to him. And she had that little conference with him where he says famously, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he tells her to go back and get Mary because he wants some time with her. But Mary leaves so quickly, so drastically, she draws a bunch of attention from all the people who are there to support her and encourage her and mourn with her. And so she doesn't come alone. She brings a crowd. But they're all on the outskirts of the village. So it's very easy from there then to go, uh, show me where you've laid him, Jesus says. And so they take him to the tomb. We find out here it is a cave, and they've sealed it already. The stone lay against it. And it has, says here in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Now that would have caused a little bit of a commotion, I would believe, because of what I've just mentioned. Um, there's possibility of defilement. But also think about this and think about what Martha's thinking and Mary and, and, and the fact that they've just seen him weeping. Remember, Jesus wasn't there when he died. And so I think in their minds, perhaps they're thinking Jesus wants one last look at Lazarus, right? I just want one, one more gaze upon him. But what, is, what, is, what does Martha say here? Uh, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead four days. It's not going to be worth the look. You don't want to go back and gaze on your loved one four days after they've been dead in that time period, right, in the tomb. It's, it's the smell, it's the heat, yeah, the heat, and, 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 and they also, you know, they sort of would wrap them loosely in, in cloth, and they would sort of put ointments and spices in between to try to, like, suppress the stench. So you're not looking upon the loved one that you once knew, Right? And so I think in Martha's mind, uh, she's thinking, Lord, you don't want to do that. You don't want to open the tomb. You don't want to smell that. You don't want to see, no one wants to see their loved one in that state. And so you have that issue. But I also think you have the possibility of defilement. You think about all the others that are around that area. And I brought this up today in Numbers 19, and this is where I was reading that. Numbers 19, verses 16 to 17, tell us this. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword, or who has died, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer, that's the red heifer I was telling you about, burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. So I was telling you, this this is in Numbers 19. You read that whole passage. It is all about that red heifer. And you'd have to go get the ashes that you saved in that vessel, and you would have to sort of decontaminate yourself with the ashes and with uh, running water, or can I say living water, <laughs> to find purification. Ashes from the red heifer. You can see all the symbolism there. 
But you can see you're not even to touch a grave. So defilement could be a problem here uh, as well. So you have a, a very interesting set of circumstances, don't you? But Jesus commands the stone to be taken away. Martha protests because ultimately, what is she concerned about? She's concerned about Lazarus and his body. She's not all concerned about God's glory. See, we're, we're on the inside track on this. We've read it, and we know it's all about God's glory, right? We were with Jesus in Perea when he said, this, this sickness is not unto death, but it's all about my glory. Remember that? So we as the audience, as the readers know, oh no, this is okay. This is all going to be okay. It's all about his glory. Martha can't think about right now. It's just she's lost her brother. <laughs> I'm only thinking about his dead, decaying body. And so Jesus has to gently remind her of why he's there. And that's why we have verse 40. And this is beautiful. Look at this. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, if you look at that exact phrase that's recorded there, that exact phrase we don't have prior to this. That's not the conversation we see in terms of the exact, exact phrase. It's not recorded. It could have been an earlier remark that he made that John never recorded in Scripture, or the statement is tended to remind her in a general way of the promise that he had made. And what was the promise? I want to take you to that conversation. It's verses 25 and 26, just to remind you. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Remember, he finished this by saying, do you believe it? And what was her response? Look at verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Great. Perfect. You believe? Let's carry on. But why do we have unbelief here? Peter claimed the same thing back in chapter 6. You might remember this. In John chapter 6, a lot of Jesus' disciples are no longer following him. They went away and followed him no more. And Jesus asked the 12 if they want to leave as well. In John chapter 6, verse 67, then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? And look what Simon Peter says. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great. It's all good for Peter. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, because he'll, betray, he'll, he'll deny Jesus, won't he? Hmm. So what are they not believing? What did he stop believing about Jesus? What Peter didn't understand in his human thinking is how the arrest and murder of Jesus could be part of God's plan, much less bring him glory. Martha has just made the same claim. Yet, what is she not believing about him? She doesn't understand how the death of Lazarus could be part of God's plan, much less how could it be for his glory. So Jesus reminds her that if she would believe, she would see the glory of God. Did you notice how he said that? See the glory of God. Sometimes we don't see the glory of God because we're not looking for the glory of God. We can't see past our own way. We can't see past our own plan, past our own understanding. Aren't we told to lean not on our own understanding? But a lot of times we just can't see past our own. Right? We just kind of fall into that. 
One of the greatest scriptural truths is one of the hardest to fathom. It's in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. <laughs> we know that all things work together for good. Do we know that? Can we say it the same way that Peter uh, declared what he believed about uh, Jesus, that Martha declared what she believed about Jesus? Oh, we know that all things work together for good. If we know it, then why don't I always act like it? Why don't I always act like all things are for the good? <laughs> because I let my human thinking get in the way. We don't often see how things could possibly work out for good, but Martha will see. You remember how we began this study two weeks ago? We talked about how the glory of God is the supreme theme in the universe. It's all about His glory, and we as Christians should, should understand, understand it the most. Commentator Leon Morris said this. I thought this was a great quote. For Jesus, the glory of God was the one important thing. This means that the real meaning of what He would do would be accessible only to faith. Interesting. All who were there, believers or not, they would see the miracle, but Jesus is promising Martha a sight of the glory. The crowd would see the miracle, but only believers would perceive its real significance, the glory. I was reminded of that. I had already prepared this when I went to the men's study, but Pastor Phil Vickery from Oxford shared on the life of David. And there was just something so profound I had never really thought about that he brought out I wanted to share with you today. And he was looking at just a David the shepherd boy and how those years of just solitude in the Judean hills with the sheep and, and what he spent that time doing. I imagine for him, while his brothers were on the battlefield doing the important things, right? He was over here going, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm doing something that's kind of mediocre, but Phil pointed out that's not really the case because that time in those Judean hills is where David was being formed into the man that he would need to be when he came back. And he said, this is where he was. He was in the throne room of God. Because think about it. He's out there on the hillside. He looks at the heavens. Oh, wow, the heavens declare your handiwork. When I look at my hands, right, I am beautifully and wonderfully formed. Hey, the Lord's my shepherd too. And he starts writing these things down right? He's just spending weeks and weeks and weeks in the throne room of God. So when the one day comes up and father calls him and says, I want you to take some supplies to the brothers and report back to me about the war. He is the only one that arrives and sees the glory of God. Do you realize that? All the battle guys have been there, right? They're all ready to go, but they're all in fear. He's the only one that comes up and says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine to find the armies of the living God? I've been in his throne room. That guy needs to go. Why is he the only one that sees it? Because he sees the glory of God because he's been in the throne room of God, right? Incredible. We don't see the glory of God because a lot of times we're just in the world. We're not in the throne room of God. So we come to the, these battles. We come to the Goliaths in our lives. We come to those things with just the same human worldly perspectives and worldly strength, and we will not succeed. And Martha has fallen into that. You can't blame her. She loves her brother. She doesn't see how this could be for the glory of God. But here's what's great. She does consent. She must. This must have been a little awkward of a situation when Jesus, the rabbi, right, the miracle worker comes up and says, roll away the tomb. And she's like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> so everyone's going, wait, do we do this or do we not do this? But all of a sudden they roll away the, the stone. So she must have given in, consented. And here we see it in verse 41. 
Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Now, I just want to stop there for a second because I do want to point out that it says they took away the stone. He had commanded others to take away the stone. Um, Why does Jesus bother involving others in this whole account? You ever think about that? Why didn't Jesus just walk up to the, the stone? I mean, if you really wanted to wow people, right? Stone, roll away. All right. That would be how Kevin would do it. I would go up there and go, watch this. Boom, huh? You ain't seen nothing yet. But not Jesus. He involves the bystanders. He says, go ahead and roll away the stone. He gets them involved in what's going on. Roll it away. And I, I went back and started looking and said, oh, Jesus has been doing that all along, right? Oh, we're out of wine. Okay, servants, fill up all those water pots with water. Did Jesus need the water pots and water to make wine? He could just gone, wine, right? How, how are we going to feed these people? Oh, we got some bread and, and loaves. Great, I'll take those. But did he need those? He could just go, bread, right? Fish, done, <laughs> right? Pizza, I don't know. He could just, whatever. He asked the blind man to go wash off in the pool of Siloam. Did he need to do that? No, but he involves the people. Do you see that? God's power is not meant to destroy man's responsibility. I think a lot of times under the pretense of humility, right, we kind of sit back and go, well, I'm just going to wait till God does something miraculous. He doesn't want us to sit idly by under that pretense. Yes, without Christ, we can do nothing, but because of Christ, we can do much to his glory. Do not underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, Verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. We're to work that out, but we're working out what God has worked in. He's already given you the power to do that. You have the power. You have the Holy Spirit. All right, well, let's look at the rest of that verse. So they took away the stone, verse 41, from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. This is a great prayer. He's not asking, notice in this prayer, for God to raise Lazarus. He doesn't do that. God, would you just, you know, heal Lazarus, resuscitate him, bring him back to life? <laughs> What's he start with? I thank you that you heard me. You've already heard me, right? It's not as if God doesn't hear what we're about to pray for, right? We do the prayer meeting before. It's not, right? It's not like we have to talk about these things and then we've got to make sure now we pray. Otherwise, God will be clueless. God was there, listen to the whole thing, right? I thank you that you've heard me. You've heard me. He's already granted his request. Jesus is already doing the Father's will. He already knows all that's happening. But he says, I also know you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I, I said this, that they may believe. The prayer wasn't for his benefit, is what I'm saying, right? The prayer is, is for the people who are around him, that they will believe. The prayer was for the glory of God. That's what the prayer for. Jesus didn't need the prayer, Right? But it was to bring God the glory. If as a result of this miracle, they were to believe in Jesus as the one whom the Father had sent, the goal would be achieved, wouldn't it? That's what he's trying to achieve. It reminds me of Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 18.37. 
Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Don't hear me because of me. There's nothing special in in me. Uh, Hear me for their sake, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. Hear me for their sake. Jesus desires here that they believe him. And then verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This uh, is, a, is a good translation. He cried loudly. He shouted greatly. That's what those words mean. Crowd gatso and megas. And these are big words used here. And I find this to be a very interesting place, particularly with everything that's happened thus far. Right? You have so these intimate little things and intimate conversations. He's like, okay, so we're all good here. Lazarus, come forth. Right? This is a big, what, what just happened? Why? Why does Jesus cry out with a loud voice? Did he have to shout in order for dead people to hear him? Is that, you know, you got to... No, he doesn't have to do that. Here's what I think. Jesus had told us back in John chapter 5, these words. In John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What has Jesus said he is? The resurrection and the life. And they responded to the voice and they came forth. See, John is constantly reinforcing the things that Jesus had said. Sometimes they're immediately after it, right? Sometimes not. But here you could go all the way back to John. Oh, Jesus was saying that. I think he's connecting it. It's a foreshadowing of the day when all the dead in the graves will hear his voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I'm glad he said Lazarus. It's often often been said that if he didn't say his name, then all the dead would have been coming out of the tomb. That would have been a crazy scene, right? Come forth. Oh, wait, only Lazarus. You guys go back. Go back. Sorry about that. False alarm. Boy, that would have been something, right? Just Lazarus this time. <laughs> but look here, what happens here. It's, it's without any theatrics, without any showmanship. I think the rolling of the stone and all those things would have been that. This is just a command. It's just a command. In fact, in the Greek, it literally reads, Lazarus, here, outside. Right, come this way. Because he is bound head and foot here. He's like covered, you know, which way do I go? I'm following. Look at verse 44. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. As I mentioned earlier, the Jews, you know, loosely wrapped the dead bodies in linen. They would wrap the head uh, separately. And although he's bound head and and foot here, hand and foot, Lazarus is, he's either, either shuffled out like a man in a sack, or there was another supernatural act that took place to help get him there. But either way, here's the miracle. He came forth. In Job 18, 14, death is referred to the king of terrors, but who did death just answer to? King of kings. <laughs> the king of terrors is not the king of anything then. At the command of Jesus, the grave was robbed of its victory, and that's because Jesus holds the keys. He has the keys. In Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. That's how Revelation opens, right? 
I died and I'm living, I'm alive, you can see me, I live forevermore. I'm the one that holds the keys. Death doesn't have the keys. Satan doesn't have the keys. Jesus has the keys because he is the life and he is the resurrection. And also, once again, Jesus involves those that are present to assist in the miracles. You know, loose him and let him go. The mourners, the many Jews who had joined Mary and Martha and Bethany, they were ultimately there, remember, to be witnesses to this miracle. And having taken the stone away, having loosed him and let him go, the spectator were, they were undeniable witnesses to that. They had to see the power of Jesus. But here's what's, here's what's, what's fascinating. With those words, loose him and let him go, John closes the scene. Everything after that is the aftermath with the Jews later on. This is how the scene closes. After everything that's been built up between Mary and Jesus and Martha and Lazarus, all the things maybe you would like answers to and me, John doesn't give us here, right? None of that. We don't see the tearful reunion with Martha and Mary like you want to see. Oh, and then there was this great moment, right, where he came and said, Martha and Mary, and they hugged. That's gone. There's nothing like that here. We don't see the reactions from the crowd. Whoa, I can't, look, it's Lazarus. Or they're running in terror, right? We don't see that. We don't, we don't see, here's the one I want to see, the reaction from Lazarus. Where have you been? What did you do? What did you see? Right? None of that is there. Isn't it interesting for the people who have died and come back to life these days, they have a lot to tell us about what they saw, what they did, and where they went, and, you know, rode rainbow unicorns and what you know whatever i just we don't really we don't see those things in scripture john doesn't put it here because that's not the point right that's not the point that would have all detracted from the reason for the miracle and the reason for the miracle is that jesus might be glorified if if lazarus to come back go let me just tell you all the things i've seen and done we've we would today we would have a lazarus cult Maybe there is one. I don't you know. I mean, you should Google that. Is there a Lazarus cult? Right? There probably is because we'll worship just about anything but the living God. Yeah. But this is the climatic seventh sign of Jesus' earthly ministry, but it only anticipates a more a glorious sign to come. Just a short time later, Jesus himself would rise from the dead. And here's the thing to keep in mind. Lazarus rose with a mortal, corruptible body, meaning... He died again later on. But Jesus rose as the conqueror of death, and Paul tells us the one who is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. And I just want to take you there to close back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We started there. We're going to end there today. I love this because Paul begins to say the resurrection happened, then he begins to go, but if it didn't happen, we're all in trouble, right? You're still in your sins. But then he answers the question here in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. So that there is no ambiguity, so there's no confusion. He says this, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Just read those words again, okay? But now Christ is risen from the dead. Forget everything I said before. I was just sort of playing devil's advocate here. What if he didn't die? What if he... But listen to me, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 
Isn't that beautiful? Can we say that the resurrection has purpose and meaning to believers today? Absolutely. And the resurrection of Lazarus precedes that. It foreshadows that. It points to that. We cannot believe in the resurrection of Christ and not believe in the other miracles. We can't explain those things away and say, oh, but then this is okay. All of those happen, and because those happen, we know that this happened. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He holds the keys of Hades and death. Death has no power over you. The grave has no power over you. There is no sting in death for us. For us, death is the new beginning and the new life that he promised. So what a glorious passage we have to enjoy today. Next week, though, we will see the confusion. We will see the aftermath. We will see people's uh, attempt to explain this away like they do today. But for us today, we can stand here and say, but now Christ has risen from the dead. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible word and for this incredible account preserved, <laughs> preserved through the ages for us to read even today that we might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have new eternal lasting life in you because of what you've done. We thank you for the awesome display of your power here. No one can deny that. You are clearly the Messiah and the Son of God, as both Peter and both Martha uh, yelled and said, you are the one. And I pray that we would never fade from that belief. We would always hold to that uh, understanding of who you are. But I also, Lord, pray, as we looked earlier here, that we would strive to see your glory in the things in this life. That was what was lacking in both in Peter and, and both in Martha. It just it led them astray. It caused them to stumble. It caused our faith to be weak. Lord, I, we just need to be in your throne room like David on the hillside of the Judean hills. Lord, just worshiping you, looking at your beauty, looking at your awesome power that we might come into these, these times and go, oh, well, here is your glory in all this. You are glorious. And we worship and praise you today. In the name of Jesus, amen.